0: I want to invite you to turn in your copy of scripture to Genesis chapter 23 this morning. Genesis 23 as we are continuing on in our series through the book of Genesis and we are coming to the end really the last sections of the life of Abraham. We have seen um, so much about the the father of those who have faith the greatest Man to whom God in the Old Testament manifested his goodness and his mercy and his grace, the man who um, stands as the head of the covenant of the Old Covenant Church Israel, and then, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians and Hebrews, that he is the father of all those who believe. He is Uh, The believer par excellence, and we have seen all of the struggles and all of the trials and all of the successes and the experiences of Abraham. And in a very real sense, God is giving us in the narrative of Abraham uh, a, a paradigm for the life of believers. Our life, if we walk by faith in this world, is very much akin to the life of Abraham in the various ways in which God has revealed that to us. And this morning, we're looking at Genesis 23. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter, and you'll find that on page 16 if you're using the church Bible. And as usual, I want to invite you to read along with me. I think you'll find it helpful to do so this morning. And before we uh, hear the preaching of God's word, let's again pray and ask God's blessing on it. Father in heaven, we do again come to you and we thank you that what happens in the preaching of the word happens for the souls of your people. We thank you that you have um, chosen to use the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. We thank you and praise you, our God, that you have done that in our lives and pray that you would do that this morning. We pray that there would be resurrection power behind the preaching of the gospel. We pray that you would give us understanding. We pray, our Father, that you would change us. Lord Jesus, we pray that from the throne of God you would speak and that you would exercise your office as the great prophet of your church and that you would uncover our sin and that you would show us our need for your righteousness and that you would Remove from us the love of this world and make us eternally minded. And so, our Father, we pray that you would accomplish your purposes today. We bless you and praise you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking at Genesis 23, beginning in verse 1. And now, after having offered Isaac up and going through with that incredible Test of faith and having coming out on the other side, as the writer of Hebrews said, receiving Isaac back figuratively, as it were, from the resurrection. In the resurrection, we now read these words. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered, Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites the people of the land and he said to them if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar that he may give me the cave at Machpelah which he owns it is at the end of his field for the full price let him give it to me in your presence as a proper burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in the gates of the city, No, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of your sons, of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephraim answered, Abraham, my lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephraim the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field With the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place. By the Hittites. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. One of the greatest burdens, one of the greatest uh, griefs that anyone can experience in life is to lose their spouse. I witnessed that as my dad received the call that my mom had died. I witnessed the grief, the pain, almost an inexpressible pain that you don't want to revisit when you see that in someone. Um, it really shows that death is not natural. It shows that death is the awful consequences of sin. And no matter how much we want to entertain ourselves through life, no matter how much we want to make ourselves happy and forget pain, no matter how much we want to beautify ourselves, no matter how much we want to pamper ourselves and push that thought out of our lives, and we do that in a million ways, we do it... By, by trying to find a hiding place in our families or with friends or in activities or with our work or a million other ways we try to push out of our minds the reality of death. We are constantly, constantly again faced with the fact that all men by nature, fallen in Adam, will taste the bitter consequences of sin and that there is a deep grief. There's a deep grief. I remember when my mom died realizing that death was just theoretical no matter how much I preached about it, no how much I talked about it, no matter, no matter how many funerals I did for others that had lost loved ones. There is a grief that you experience when you lose a parent or a, a spouse, especially, or a child, someone so beloved to you and we see as Abraham as God has been going through this narrative and Abraham has had many difficult trials and yet Sarah has been there with him all along the way it has not been Abraham alone God in his mercy and grace gave Abraham Sarah the apostle the apostle Peter in his first epistle um, says that she was with Abraham a co-heir of the grace of life That's the way Christian marriage is painted. And as Abraham went through all those challenges and trials, the the challenges he went through being called away from his own father's house to follow the Lord, the sacrifice of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, having to leave his family, having to leave everything that he knew, having to leave his homeland, God never called him to leave Sarah. And, and all of the challenges that he faced as he and Lot went through those potential tensions as their herds grew and their possessions grew and having to be called away from Lot, Abraham was not called away from Sarah. And all of the dangers that he faced in the famines and going down into Egypt and even those stumblings in which he stumbled in handing Sarah over for his own safety, the Lord did not call Abraham away from Sarah. And even when Abraham went through those trials and God wanted Hagar and Ishmael to be sent away, Abraham's own son, his own offspring, and the painful experience that Abraham had to experience in sending Hagar and Ishmael away, Out of his home, away from the covenant promises and blessings, God didn't call Sarah away from Abraham. And when Abraham was called to offer up Isaac, his only son, the beloved son, the one in whom all the promises rested, God had not yet at that point called Sarah away from Abraham. And yet as we come to the end of Abraham's life, as we come to the end of the life of one who had been so richly blessed, one who had been given so many promises... As we come to the end of the life of one who exemplifies for us what it is to walk in faith, what it is to live by faith, we are now being met with this final great trial and challenge. You know, I was thinking about this this week, and I suppose I've never really thought about the life of Abraham quite the same way as I have since we've been working our way through it here at New Covenant. But his entire life, having left his father's house, and everything, all the security that he had, it was a life of loss. It's a life of loss. We, we don't like to think of it that way. Even if we're willing to leave um, as believers, our friends, and even a, a geographical location to walk with the Lord, none of us like the idea that the Christian life is a life of loss even within our own homes. Abraham in essence, now is losing everything. He's lost Ishmael. He's lost his own family. In one sense, he, he lost Isaac. He had to go through the painful reality of, of offering up Isaac though the Lord stopped him. And now he's lost his co-heir with him in the grace of life. And the first thing that we're going to see this morning is the experience and the pain of the loss of believers. You know, we, 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 want, we want happy experiences we want we want happy outcomes we want positive experiences in life and yet um, as we see from abraham and we will see in the life of david you know it struck me this past year david lost everything david kills goliath he is hailed as being the greatest warrior even greater than the first king of israel and Then he has to lose his wife. Saul's daughter has to be given to another man. He loses his safety. He loses his friends. He loses a sense that he's going to be set on the throne, even though he's been anointed. He loses his home. He has to live in a cave for seven years. He loses his dignity when he goes down and hides among the Philistines and has to act like a madman in order to save his life. He loses everything before God raises him up. And Abraham, Abraham, the father of those who have faith, has now lost, in a sense, everything. He has lost Sarah. And you see the pain of the loss. Notice the way, notice the way that Moses describes it. Though they had been married for many, many years, Sarah living 127 years, notice Sarah died in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah, and to weep for her i have heard many christians say when i die i want my funeral to be a party And I understand the sentiment. We're going to talk about the hope of the resurrection. We're going to see that Christians don't grieve as those that have no hope. But there is something deeply, deeply, deeply painful about the loss of a beloved believer that God has so graciously put into our lives. There is something deeply painful. There is a great loss that is suffered. You can only hear it when you hear someone wailing over the loss of their spouse, it is theoretical. Until it happens to you. And Abraham, we see here, is weeping over the loss of Sarah. He is mourning. He is missing her earthly presence, as one writer says. He is longing for that earthly presence to be there with him. He is pained. At the old age of 137 years old, Abraham is grieved over the loss of his beloved spouse. I think that one of the things that we take away from that is what the writer says in Ecclesiastes. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of weeping. For that is the end of all men, and people will take it to heart. It is good for us to come face to face with the fact that death is unnatural, that death is the consequence of sin, that death comes to all of us, The death will come to our loved ones, that death is the last inevitable experience of, yes, even believers in this life. No matter how much covenant blessing has been loaded down on Abraham and Sarah, no matter how many large promises God has made to them, they cannot escape the curse of death no matter how much we try to make medical advances. You know, I was reading David Wells' uh, book, No Place for Truth, over the last several weeks again, written in 1993, right at the brink of what we might call postmodernity modernity and, and a year before the internet, comes out, and Wells, in that book, is talking about how many advances we've had in the world. And and he says, you know, we we have medical advances, and we have scientific advances, and we have mechanical advances like never before. And we have technological advances. And and the world around us loves progress. It loves the progress. It makes life a little bit easier. And, And he says, and we have faith that things are getting better. And because of all the progress, we have faith that it will continue to get better. And then Wells says, but the illusion of the postmodern mind is that we can move from a faith in one kind of progress to a faith in another kind of progress. That we ourselves can, can conquer our own mortality. He says that we can have better selves. That we think in some way we can conquer not just our own mortality, but our own corruption by technology and science and mechanical advancement and technological advancement and and wells goes on to say this is why this is why the world in which we live can call itself by no other name than post he says we are we've convinced ourselves that we're post puritan post christian post enlightenment post the cold war post world war post depravity We think that we are post-everything, and then we come to the scriptures, and God is everywhere reminding us of man's latter end, that no no amount of technology, no amount of medicine, no amount of science, no amount of progress in all of those other worlds, no matter how much easier they may make the experiences of life, can ever conquer our own mortality. Um, I've been reflecting on this issue uh, for some time now, and I, I think it hit me most recently with the death of David Bowie that um, here's David Bowie, who nobody really talked about for the last decade at all, and who was not a good and upright man by any stretch of the imagination. And David Bowie dies, and he is functionally canonized. That the best that this post-modern society can do is, is usher in some sort of illusion of justification by death. That's the best we've got. Somehow paint death as more beautiful than it is. Somehow make death something lovely and noble. Somehow make death a savior, and death is not a savior. Death, the Bible says, is the last great enemy. It is the last great enemy. It takes away life. It takes away love and enjoyment and experience and everything that we know in this world. You know, Jonathan Edwards one of his resolutions, he, he said, and I think it's, it's probably the, the resolution that I'm, I want to most have for myself, he said, resolved never to let a day go by without thinking of my own death. That's a good resolution. It's good to come to terms with the fact that our lives are just not going to go on forever. We like to push, push it out of our minds. We want to just push it out, just get it out. Let's not dwell on it too long. And God says, no, let's come to terms with the fact that this is the latter end of all men. Um, it comes to young, it comes to old, it comes to rich, to poor. It is the common end of every." living being every man every woman and you see the great loss that abraham feels abraham in one sense is entering into the loss he's acknowledging the effects of sin he's acknowledging that no matter how much god has blessed him he has now lost some little tiny aspect of god's goodness to him and losing sarah he mourns deeply for her i want to read to you what one writer has said he said that um He said, Abraham clings to Sarah in faith after she has died. He loves her earthly appearance and wants to see it restored. He wants to see it restored. Now, that is the first thing that we see in Genesis 23. We see the great loss, the reality of death, the great loss that believers suffer. I I remember uh, thinking when my mom died that uh, she was such a strong believer that the world had lost something. And you could think of that for any believer. That when God takes a true believer out of the world, the world is is a little worse than it was with them in it. Isaiah says that Isaiah fifty seven one, uh, the Lord takes away the righteous, and the wicked do not take it to heart. But He takes them away from evil, so that they do not see evil. The world is a little, a little worse off without one believer in it that God had so graciously put in this world by His mercy and by his redeeming grace. Um, Sarah was and, and is included in that great catalog of saints in Hebrews chapter 11. She is considered to be one of whom the world is not worthy. That's the way we ought to view other believers. One of whom the world is not worthy. And yet, as Abraham is grieving and he is experiencing the pain of loss, and as he is teaching us that it's right for us to experience the pain of loss and to face the the awful realities of sin, no matter how much God has vouchsafed his blessings to us, Abraham is hoping in the resurrection. Now, we have seen already that Abraham was hoping in the resurrection and offering up Isaac. That the very last thing we saw in Genesis was that Abraham could go through with obeying the God of heaven who called him to offer up the son of promise, though he had been told that that son would be the one in whom all the nations would be blessed, that the Redeemer would come from him, that Abraham could offer up Isaac on that altar because Abraham reasoned that God would raise him from the dead. Abraham was driven by rationalizing the truth of the resurrection into his actions as he walked by faith. Now, I think that is enormous. That's enormous. What does what is, what is a passage like Genesis 23 have for us? I, I would be tempted to say, and was telling Mark and Travis, I think most people would read through Genesis 23 and their private reading and say, okay, that's sad. Sarah died. He buried her. Okay. Because we don't factor in the resurrection on a consistent and conscious base basis in our actions. Abraham has done that with Isaac. The writer of Hebrews told us that he he reasoned that God would have somehow raised Isaac from the dead and given him back to which he received him figuratively when God gave Isaac back to Abraham. And here as Abraham is now grieving the loss of his beloved co-heir in the grace of life, he is recognizing that the hope of the resurrection is what God has given him to make it through that tragedy. That is what the world will never know. The world will never know what it is to have, by faith, the hope of the resurrection. Abraham is not just burying uh sarah out of some sort of cultural uh action he is not just practicing some cultural action of the ancient near east that men decided somehow will come up with this idea of burial abraham is acting in faith he is acting in faith how do we know that abraham is acting in faith because in hebrews 11 in that great chapter we are told that that last event at the end of this book the end of genesis the very last thing is that joseph makes his brothers swear that they will take his bones up into the promised land when God fulfills everything, that they will take his bones from Egypt and they will bury him in the promised land. Well, what good does that do somebody that's dead? It doesn't do any good. Joseph recognizes that God is going to fulfill his promises, that there is a day of resurrection, and that Joseph is going to rise in the very place where God promised to give Abraham as an inheritance. Um, Abraham is here setting the stage for the burial of faith. He is deeply desirous to see his wife restored. Now, how does that come about? What are the steps? How do I get to a place where I live in light of the resurrection? Because it's nice and it's fine that we say on Sunday morning, I believe in the resurrection from the dead. It's nice that we intellectually give assent to it. But how do I get to a place where Belief in the resurrection from the dead actually impacts my actions in this world. Not just my final action of burying a spouse or my own burial, but my life. How do I get to a place? How does Abraham come to this place? Abraham didn't have anybody to mentor him. He didn't have an older godly man in the church to mentor him. His father was an idolater. Abraham didn't have a a whole cloud of witnesses like we do to look at and to say, look, here are people we can emulate. They did this, now we'll do this. Abraham had the promises of God. Abraham understood that he was sojourning. Notice notice what is said here when Abraham goes to the Hittites as he is in the promised land, and he says in verse 4, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Now, it's very interesting. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, he sees in this chapter worlds of theology, in this chapter. He's reflecting on this chapter in a special way when he says that Abraham, and then uh, obviously with him Isaac, and then Jacob, dwelt in tents in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, not knowing where they were going but hoping in a better city a city that had foundation whose builder and maker is god now if abraham was dwelling in tents outside of canaan that would not be surprising to us if, if we were reading abraham was pitching his tent outside of canaan all around the promised land And was not calling himself a stranger within the promised land that would not be significant to us but it is massively significant to see here abraham has been for 25 to 30 years within the land of promise now longer than that he has been moving around and living in a tent that tent by the way abraham has two symbols i don't know if you'd ever thought of this before there are two symbols going on in abraham's christian life his life of faith he has a tent and he has an altar wherever he goes he has a tent and he has an altar the tent reminds him and tells us that what he thought about himself was that he was a sojourner, that this was not his home. Massively important to get that. Gerhardus Voss will actually say, it's one of my favorite quotes in all of church history. He says, only the predestined inhabitants of the eternal city know how to conduct themselves in a simple tent as kings and priests unto God. I love that. Only the predestined inhabitants of the eternal city know how to conduct themselves in a simple tent as kings and princes of God. That only somebody who has saving faith can live in a tent in the land of promise, not knowing where he's going, not seeking to build for himself an establishment, not trying to lay up as much inheritance as he possibly can, not laboring for the next security for him and his family and his children, but following the God of promise, not knowing where he's going in the very land. The tent was a symbol that he was a sojourner, that that's how he considered himself. The altar was a symbol that he considered himself to be a sinner in need of redemption. The totality of Abraham's life could be summarized in those two symbols, the tent and the altar. It's true for us as well. Our lives, when people look on, there should be something about our lives that says that person is not too comfortable here. There's nothing comfortable about abraham's dwellings for 30 years that people should be able to look at the life of a christian and however it looks and whatever shape and form that may take they should be able to say there's something about that person they are not making their home here i think that's a question we can always ask ourselves do i do i first and foremost consider myself a sojourner here do i think this is just a pit stop on the way to glory this is just a stop along the way That's the way the writer of Hebrews speaks about it. That this is not our home. That here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. You know, it is the rarest thing in the world to meet individuals that think like that. And yet, that's how Christians think. That is the essence of what it means to think as a Christian. And that means that if we know that we're sojourners, if we know that our life here is temporary and passing and fleeting, and listen to me very carefully, your life is a vapor, it is a Breath. That's it. That's all our life is. You say, that's discouraging. I don't care. That's reality. Your life is a vapor. It is a breath. Here today, gone tomorrow. And the pagan worldview is eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die. And the Christian's worldview is I am a sojourner and a foreigner here. And Once we start to think that way and our mind starts to be shaped by the fact that we long to be in our heavenly habitation and we long to be with the Lord Jesus Christ and we're hoping in that full consummation of redemption, we end up like Abraham. We live in light of the resurrection. Abraham does not have the land of promise. Abraham doesn't have possession of any of the land. God said, I'm going to give you all the land. God said, I'm going to give you the world. Abraham has no property in Canaan. And now... Because he views himself as a sojourner, as he grieves the loss of his wife and longs to see it restored in the very land in which God has promised him, Abraham purchases a tiny little burial plot in which his wife will be buried, he will be buried, Isaac will be buried, Rebecca will be buried, later Jacob will be buried, and Leah will be buried. Now, what's the significance? Abraham is hoping in the resurrection from the dead. He is acting in faith in giving his wife this special burial. In fact, the, the entire financial exchange, because you might ask the question, why, why why does it dwell so long on Abraham insisting on paying for this property? I mean, here's Ephraim, and Ephraim's saying, look, it's nothing, it's worth 400 shekels, take it. You would think Abraham, in grief and sorrow, would say, thank you, I'm grieving, thank you. Thank you for your kindness, thank you for your generosity. It's not that Abraham is too proud. It's not that Abraham is insisting that he's too proud to receive a gift from anyone. It's not the same action as Abraham had done with the king of Sodom when he wouldn't take any of the possessions unless the king of Sodom said that he made Abraham rich. It's that Abraham is ensuring that that place, that's the only property he has, is a burial plot. That that is in his possession, that the transaction legally occurs so that it will be a lasting place so that he and his family will be buried there in expectant hope of the resurrection. I want to read this brief section to you out of Degraf's Promise and Deliverance. He says, Abraham, because he loved Sarah's earthly appearance and wanted to see it restored, sought a burial place for her in the inhabited world and did not bury her outside in the fields. For believers, the grave is a symbol not only of humiliation and downfall, but also of the part they play in history here on earth and even of their ultimate glorification with the earth. Because he believed in the resurrection of the dead, Abraham buried Sarah. I wrote a blog post six months before we buried my mom called A Biblical Theology of Burial, and I've never made people so angry. I didn't mean to make people angry. I was trying to unpack the glories of believers hoping in the resurrection. And, and I understand the debates over burial and cremation. I don't want to get into it this morning. But if we miss the fact that Abraham is not just doing some cultural action, but that he is actually acting in resurrection hope, then we miss the whole point of the Bible. You know, everything from here is moving. It's all moving. It's all moving to Jesus. There is a burial that happens. Bible places great focus on the burial of jesus christ you Now, it's a striking feature that abraham is ultimately hoping in the resurrection of jesus because sarah's resurrection and his resurrection is dependent on the resurrection of the son of abraham And as the biblical narrative unfolds and as all of redemptive history passes and the promises of God are expanded and the warnings of God are given and God is continuing to say, I'm going to send the Redeemer. I'm going to come and redeem a people. And as the biblical narrative ends at the climax of the death of the Son of God on the cross, you realize that he's lived his life as a sojourner. He moved around in the promised land. He had no place to lay his head. The Lord Jesus, just like Abraham before him, Dwelt as a sojourner, greater than Abraham, in fact, because he came from heaven. He was exiled. He lived as an exile. He had no place to lay his head. The Son of Man moved all around the land of promise. He owned no property, though he owned every star in the galaxy. He owned no property in the promised land in the incarnation. He had no house. He he had no inheritance to give his disciples. He he was helpless and homeless. He who was rich was made poor. The Bible says so that we through his poverty might become rich spiritually. And his life ends, crucified. And there's these very interesting things that occur as you read through the Bible. One is in Isaiah 53 where in that great prophecy of the suffering servant, um, Isaiah is predicting what's going to happen to the Redeemer. And he says, they made his grave with the wicked. And... And as you begin to unpack that, you realize that means that his body would have been thrown in a burning trash heap with the other criminals. That's what would have happened to Jesus. Made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death. He got the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man. And and when Peter on Pentecost stands, and I've always found this to be fascinating, as Peter is proclaiming the mysteries of the death and resurrection of Jesus as he is as he is preaching the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of those who had crucified the Lord Jesus, the very people who had crucified him, and as he's preaching, he goes back and reaches back into Psalm sixteen, a psalm that David wrote. And and you you and I, we would read through the Psalms and we'd be like, okay, how does that apply to my life? What is that going to do? How am I going to have a good day today? What's that? How's that going to bolster my experience? And, and, and Peter doesn't do any of that. Peter doesn't do that. He says, at the end of Psalm 16, the psalmist writes, you will not leave my soul in, in Hades. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And David says, you know, this is not about David. This is not about you. He said, David is dead and buried. Graves with us. This is about Christ. That David spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that God would not allow him to see corruption, that he was anointed with those costly spices. His body was preserved, and he was given a proper burial. Because God would highlight the resurrection of resurrections, the hope of Abraham, what Abraham was longing for, the resurrection of the Son of God. I want to say this this morning. If you are a Christian and you are not hoping in the resurrection, my prayer is that God would quicken you, would remove whatever illusions you've allowed yourself to be deluded with, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the quest for security, satisfaction, um, those are all illusions, they're all illusions. Um, one of the greatest comforts that I received as we buried my mom, one of my friends, Dave Filson, a minister in the PCA in Nashville, who buried his mom probably six months afterwards, he said to me, when you're standing by your mom's graveside, remember this is resurrection ground. I've never heard that. I love that. When you're standing by the graveside of a believer, not an unbeliever, get rid of those false hopes that everybody just goes to a better place, everybody's laughing with their uncle and their grandpa, having a good time and telling jokes. Those who believe in Jesus, who are trusting in Jesus, who are hoping in the resurrection, your graveside, Their graveside is resurrection ground. It's resurrection ground. Nancy Guthrie reminded me just before mom's funeral that as she buried two of her children, that her minister said to her, Nancy, when you stand at the grave of your children, this is where we say, does the gospel really work? It's not in making my marriage better. Your marriage may not get better. It's not in... in Just making things better and life easier and and raising children easier and and it's not about having not having rebellious children. It's not. It's not about having well-mannered children. It's not about any of those things. The gospel is not about it it impacts all those to some extent. There's no guarantee of any of that. What the gospel does is it guarantees the resurrection from the dead. It guarantees your resurrection and my resurrection the resurrection of every other believer. Um, You know, I love the way the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he is talking about this, he says, you know, we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Um, And he said, if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. If there's no resurrection from the dead, Jesus is not raised. And if Jesus is not raised, your faith is futile, my preaching is futile, And you might as well just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. It's just nihilism. That's it. But you know what? Every one of us has a conscience. Every one of us knows we have to give an account of things done in the body, whether good or evil. Every one of us knows. Every one of us knows there's more. Every one of us knows death is not natural. We know that death is unnatural and is painful and brings about loss. But our hope, our hope, and I want to press this in this morning as we close, our hope, you know, we are people of resurrection. That's what you are. If you're a Christian, you are you are a person of resurrection hope. The world can never have that. There's that great line in the hymn, "Jesus lives and so shall I," even the, even the title, "Jesus lives and so shall I." And there's that great line, "Death is now my entrance." into glory. There's a sense where Abraham knew that. We can know it so much better than he knew it. We have so much more light, so much more truth, so much more of the gospel clearly revealed. And that means that when our beloved, believing loved ones die, and when we die, death is but an entrance into glory. I don't know who first framed this, but it kind of captures... The essence of Genesis 23, whenever a believer dies, someone close to us, um, it's heaven's gain and it's our loss, but God is going to restore it when we are gathered together with them in glory and raised up with them in the resurrection. This is Christianity. This is it. That's Christianity. It should govern our lives. It should govern our actions. It should govern our thoughts. It should govern our attitudes. It should govern our families and our speech. And what we do even in that last great act, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to come to terms with the reality of death and the reality of the fall and the curse and that we will all taste death. And we also pray that you would help us to come to terms with the fact that, Lord Jesus, you have tasted death for us, that you have conquered death by yourself, we praise you and bless you that you are risen and that we are the first fruits, and that you have promised and secured for us our own resurrection from the dead. We pray that you would make us a people of hope, a people of resurrection anticipation. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would enable us to walk by faith as Abraham did and to act and live in faith and in hope of the resurrection from the dead. Our God, we pray that you would do this for us by your Holy Spirit. We praise you for the resurrection of your son, his ascension, his reign, and his promised return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.